Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. We are solution architects and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we dive deep, demystify technology, and talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives in topics of interest. All right. Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Shai Pranik, and this is episode 84 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And for today's show, I'm joined with my co-host, Forrest. Hey, Shai. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Really excited to chat about blockchain today. Uh, just to give a little bit of background about myself, uh, I'm a blockchain specialist solutions architect at AWS. And my focus there is to help customers uh, adopt blockchain and get value out of blockchain, whether through the Amazon managed blockchain service, um, or through other solutions that y- utilize different protocols and, and AWS services. Uh, so really, again, excited to chat today. Yeah, I'm excited. We're, we're going to get going today. Uh, we're going to go deep into uh, blockchain and AWS blockchain. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to get going today as we're going to be diving into AWS blockchain. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense that you'd be excited. I know uh, in previous shows of Tech Chat, you've gotten uh, pretty lost on different storage, but uh yeah, no, it's really interesting. A big part of blockchain is the conversation of storage and, and how to go about that and how it differs also from, from databases. So uh, let's let's jump in. You know, I guess I just really love everything about storage. So remember, keep me on track. I, I might go off the deep end. Uh, you'll just have to virtually nudge me every once in a while uh, just to remind me to stay on track here. So let's just set some expectations for our listeners right, before we um, get too far into this and really start geeking out. Uh, first, we're going to be talking pure tech here. After all, this is the AWS Tech Chat podcast. Our focus today is going to be on getting started with blockchain and the tech behind it. We want to help our listeners who may have who may have blockchain workloads or wondering if blockchain makes sense for their workload. We'll start high level, cover some terminology, and then dive into what to watch out for as you work towards deploying that workload. Sounds great. Thanks for the level set. And and just to be clear, like this is not a, a cryptocurrency or or investing focus show, right? Yeah, right. Correct. Uh, We're not going to be talking about that shiny new Bitcoin you just bought and carrying around in your pocket. Uh, (laughs) However, we will be talking about the concept of cryptocurrency and its place in the blockchain deployment. So let's jump right into it. First off, let's break apart some of the terminology so our listeners may have heard some of the stuff thrown around. And we'll start right at the top. Forrest, given this is your area of specialty, can you help us break down the term blockchain and what it means? Yeah, absolutely. That is probably the the best possible place to start. And so the way I would generally reference this is that blockchain is a general term, you know, holding term for a a sort of technology solution of which there are many permutations of which there are many implementations. And so it's not a project, it's not a coin or a token, uh, and it can manifest itself in many different ways, right? So, um, you know, one of the common questions you get when someone's first entering into the blockchain world is, are Bitcoin and blockchain the same thing, for example? And I think that's a, a very common question. And ultimately, that's a great way to segue into what blockchain really is. Blockchain is um, a piece of technology that essentially establishes a peer-to-peer transaction network that is composed of a handful of different sort of components that are enmeshed together. The fundamental component is the actual distributed ledger component. Uh, at the very, in the very basic sense, it is an immutable append-only data structure that is subsequently kept as a copy by multiple different nodes in a distributed or decentralized network. And as new data is being written in the form of what we call transactions in a blockchain, these different 
uh, copies of the ledger, of course, need to be reconciled with each other to make sure that all these different participants in the decentralized network agree on the state of transactions and the state of data in that ledger. That ledger has to match across the board. And so there's a process called consensus, you know, sort of governs that that agreement or that agreement on state uh, on the distributed ledger itself. So blockchain really is a, a data structure um, that is held across many decentralized parties. Yeah, thanks for that detail there. So let's let's keep diving into it because I think there's so much to, to peel back here. Um, but I want to start with the the chain portion, right? I think that's really yeah. key to understand and, and really help our listeners who are new to blockchain really understand why it's different uh, than some of the tech that we've had before. Yeah, yeah. I think diving into the even the nomenclature of blockchain, it helps actually explain uh, what it is. And so, you know, I was just talking about how it's a distributed ledger. It's immutable in nature. It's append only. You update that ledger based on transactions. And you have all these disparate copies held by different entities in the network. They all keep each other honest. There's fault tolerance. If one node goes down, they can get the copy from someone else, right? We get the, the fundamental layer. But then if you start to talk about then that cadence of consensus, where you have all these nodes agreeing on the state of that ledger, um, you have basically transactions coming in that want to update the state of that ledger. And so you need this mechanism to figure out what's a validated transaction and what is to be validated. So there's the concept of blocks and these blocks basically collect validated transactions that um, that the network agrees are in fact, um, you know, validated and true and part of the ledger. And so on this cadence of consensus, you have new blocks of transactions that are appended to one another in sort of a sequential order or in a canonical chain. And so you essentially then have a chain of blocks and those blocks contain validated transactions that are agreed upon on the network. So hence you have a chain of blocks or a blockchain. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> there you go. So that's how we define a blockchain, right? Just that chain of blocks. So thanks thanks for all the detail there. Definitely a lot sure. of stuff to, to get into. I want to get back to the cryptocurrencies you mentioned before, right? And I know mm-hmm. um, our listeners have probably heard of Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, many others, right? These are cryptocurrencies. Yeah. But let's break this down further before we, we get too far into the show. Can you help us understand how these relate to the blockchain? Yeah, for sure. So cryptocurrencies are an interesting topic because, you know, again, often I think you hear the word cryptocurrency synonymous with the word blockchain. And and, and in fact, it's uh, they're related, but but more or less um, there's a they're distinct higher. There's a distinct hierarchy to it. And so you have blockchain at the very base layer. That is your <clears throat> sort of underlying technology. But then oftentimes there is, uh, you know, block those blockchains are used as a um, a method of accounting, a ledger of accounting. Sometimes those blockchains are used as execution environments to facilitate, um, you know, sort of a world computer-esque type of operation like Ethereum, uh, where applications can be built. You need a fee-bearing currency uh, to to run that type of ecosystem where you pay for uh, the execution time or the storage space, what have you in the network. And so cryptocurrencies kind of started there. You have those great examples, like you mentioned, Shai, um, you know, Bitcoin, which is sort of a uh, fixed supply asset for peer-to-peer exchange, you know, in the Ethereum world, you have Ether, which like I said, is that fee-bearing currency. It's used like as money, if you will. And so cryptocurrencies sit on top of blockchains as often an enablement component um, and as a, a sort of utility in those networks. 
Cool. Thank you for explaining that. Right. So the way I like to think of it in my head too, that helps me understand some of that is if I think about the, the cryptocurrency, right, it's in a proof of work, like Bitcoin as an example, that's paid to miners as fees, right? And like you mentioned in uh, Ethereum where it's proof of stake, that's paid in gas fees or fees on that network. You can also use that currency to stake it on the, on the network to provide security for that network, or you can delegate it to a node on that network again to, to provide further security for that network in a proof of stake blockchain. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, and, and listen, like as as networks like Ethereum, right, they move, you know, change consensus protocols, like you mentioned, from, you know, from proof of work to proof of stake, the, the utility of that cryptocurrency changes. I think the thing that that is key here is that cryptocurrency is a tool in a blockchain ecosystem more often than not. And, and the, you know, it contributes to the economic levers that help secure that blockchain network in the in the sense that it's a decentralized network. There's no central authority that that controls it. Um, therefore, oftentimes in these public networks specifically, um, you know, cryptocurrency has an actual tangible value in the security of the network. Whereas in private networks, right, you know, cryptocurrency is um, you know maybe used differently in a sense of the word. So there's nuance to it, of course. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot more depth here that we're, we're some of this stuff we're, we're, we could definitely easily spend at least a show or two just going into details on here. So definitely. definitely drop us a line if you're interested and want to dive deeper into these areas. You know, so I, I want to touch on one last thing before we move on to consensus and smart contracts. It's really, you know, most often the blockchain networks by themselves are not equipped to create an account for cryptocurrency tokens at that base layer. Um, mm-hmm. This requires some additional logic components uh, to support tokens which is going to lead us to the discussion of, of smart contracts. However, before we, we get into that, I, I want to step back a little bit and uh, talk to about consensus for a second, because we, we start up before, and I think really to understand smart contracts, before we get to that stuff, I think it's important that we understand consensus. So let me summarize it kind of the way that, that's made sense to me, and then feel free to add anything on there. We'll, we'll dive into it. You know, we talked about nodes on the blockchain uh, network earlier, but it's important that we cover consensus uh, before, we go, uh, before we go deep, as this term comes up often. Consensus really isn't different um, in a blockchain in a real world. Uh, let's just say, for example, you have five friends and three of you agree to, agree to the, go to the movies versus dinner. You have uh, you have consensus to go to the movies. Um, in the blockchain world, a certain number of nodes have to agree on a transaction. Different blockchain frameworks have different consensus mechanisms. This is the proof of work and proof of stake we mentioned earlier. Um, in my example before, that's a simple majority consensus or majority rules, as we used to say as kids. Forrest, what other types of or forms of consensus exist in the blockchain that you think our listeners should keep in mind? Yeah, there there are a ton, right? And consensus plays a huge part, right? It's the, first of all, it's the fundamental positioning in terms of the security of the network. It also is one of the major things that determines the transaction throughput or the scalability of a blockchain network. You often hear about, you know, particularly in public networks, blockchain doesn't scale very well. And so the development of of consistently either permutations of existing consensus mechanisms or net new ones um, kind of change the equation there. Uh, the goal is to create high security with high transaction throughput. And then of course, uh, high decentralization as well. Like that is the, you know, the holy trifecta of a quality consensus protocol. So today you have examples of consensus like proof of work, which is used in networks like Bitcoin and the current implementation of Ethereum, though it's moving towards proof of stake, which we'll talk about in a second. Proof of work essentially is designed to use economic uh, incentive and disincentive um, by way of computational waste. And so it's like basically um, the cost of running very um, lengthy computational cycles in order to be the person who validates uh, transactions into a block on the, the Bitcoin network, for example, or the Ethereum network, for example. Now, that cost associated with essentially what is um, 
hashing using a, a nonce or an iterated value to find a, to get a value within a certain target, um, essentially you're paying for the electricity, the computational power that's required to do that computation, which disincentivizes you, of course, from you know doing so in a way that doesn't benefit you. The incentive on the side also comes in the sense that if you are a person who creates a block in that network in proof of work, you are rewarded handsomely in the native coin on the network. And so there's th- there's sort of this you know security by economics. And of course, that process is where the network agrees on transactions. So in the very basic sense, right, consensus is reaching consensus on the state of transactions. But how that mechanically happens um, it is very dependent on the protocol at play. And so proof of stake in a simple sense, you know, sort of changes the, the, the method there, which is, um, you know, the higher stake you have in the network, the more skin in the game you have in terms of your, um, you know, the more money that you put on the table in the native coin uh, on the network, the more say you have or more weight you have in determining what the next blocks are. Again, that's saying if you do something malicious, you're hurting your holdings more because you have more skin in the game. So like, there's all sorts of different permutations of this and we can't go into super high depth here trying to keep it a high level, but that's a general sense. All right. So to wrap this up, it's key to understand that the network comes to consensus, the impact that consensus has on the transactions, therefore the impact on the on the energy rate and consumption and the scalability and the hardware requirements, and then finally the security requirements uh, for that network. So that consensus impacts all those things. All right. That was a that was quite a mouthful. Let's move on to smart contracts here. Sure. So maybe our listeners have heard of, of Ethereum uh, and smart contracts, right? Smart contracts, or um, as I like to refer to them as chain code in the Hyperledger world. Um, or the business logic on the blockchain. They say what happens uh, when an actual transaction occurs on the blockchain. Think of a smart contract or that chain code as that business logic that runs on a decentralized network. In Hyperledger, these are written in Go and Node.js, and Ethereum has its own language called Solidity. The token can be thought of to represent the smart contract or that chain code. These tokens live on existing blockchains, commonly Ethereum, and assign an address. Can you help us dive into uh, tokenization for us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you look at smart contracts, right, what they really are, are just pieces of code that live on the blockchain. And with those smart contracts, like you mentioned, you can create a wide variety of different use cases. And one of the main ones would be tokenization. Um, When you hear about physical assets being transacted in near real time on a blockchain, that is through tokenization. When you hear about different, you know, projects out there that have created their own token, that is through tokenization uh, using smart contracts and, and smart contracts because they are code because you have access to storage. It's much like any other code that you would write in, in the general sense of the word. You can sort of map a, a user identity like an address, an address being sort of like your user ID on a blockchain uh, to a balance of a certain token. Right. So there's there's a lot of value in, in doing uh, tokenization uh, in the context of a blockchain. Um, so to understand tokenization, I think you you have to think about token standards. And um, token standards, for example, in the Ethereum world, I think is the most common uh, as you have different um, token standards, uh, ERC, uh, which is stands for uh, Ethereum Request for Comments. It's basically um, vetted sort of community validated standards for how to implement different types of tokens. So on one hand, you have fungible tokens, which can implement things like uh, digital currency. Um, so like stable coins, for example, like USD coin. So is this where I hear like ERC 20 and ERC 721 when I'm, when I'm kind of looking online, I hear these different standards. Is that what these are? Precisely. Yeah, precisely. And, and, you know, ERC 721, ERC 20, 
Um, those are both very common token standards. Those are probably the two most prevalent token standards for um, fungible and non-fungible tokens, respectively. Of course, there are others. So like on the non-fungible token side of things, those are like crypto collectibles, for example, um, or tokens that are each unique in value, not exchangeable one-to-one. Uh, you have ERC-1155. So there's a, a ton of different um, token standards. I couldn't even list them all here that are in varying degrees of sort of community acceptance and maturity. And, yeah, and what these are, yeah, you'd be here all day talking about <laughs> them all. I, I mean, um, and and ultimately these ERCs, when they become like formal standards, you know, when they're sort of the beginning stages, they're like, hey, we're looking for comments from the open source community, hence the ERC acronym. And then they're, they're you know, more formal, it becomes an EIP or an Ethereum improvement proposal, which makes it more of a formal standard that's been, you know, after it's been vetted and really in honed for, for a while, right? So, so, so that ERC is just a request for comments, right? Just that, that request out to the community to get feedback back on, on that proposal. Yeah, yeah, in a general sense. And of course, these are iterative, right? The, these yeah. standards continue to evolve and, and we're still early days. Um, but things like ERC-20 that have been around for a long time have, have gotten definitely more feedback and more development and more thought and analysis as to what, um, you know, how they can be improved. Um, but standards are important, right? Standards are important across any technology. Um, you know, you have to balance that against, you know, leaving room for innovation. But um you know, having a standardized mechanism where you've you've learned the lessons from you know naive implementations or um, you know previous uh, exploits and things like that, um, you can really give people a solid base from which to develop new and innovative features. So, do you, do you have to follow the standard though? I mean, is there like a requirement that if I'm developing a, a token, if I'm developing something, I have to follow that standard? If I if I don't, that contract can't exist, or that smart contract can't exist on the Ethereum blockchain. I mean, there's a loose a loose mechanism for validation, right? Um, you know, deploying a contract, a smart contract that is, you know, sort of that is called an, an ERC-20, right? You have to implement certain methods, but there's, you know, it's challenging because you want to balance, like I said, this open sort of, um, it's not a, a no rules environment, but this really open, flexible environment. But you also want to create a secure, standardized place for people to build things uh, and so balancing that becomes challenging, uh, but there are there are standards out there for that. There's a way, of course, to set you know create a smart contract that doesn't adhere to those standards and and say, hey, this is a tokenization contract, and if you don't you know look at it as the user or as an, an adopter of that contract, you know, of course, you're subject to whatever code that that developer uh, has written. So uh, the transparent nature of smart contracts, that being said, gives you that ability to you know, when you're interacting with one, you can freely check to make sure it it meets the the criteria for you and maybe according to other standards and best practices. So I think it's important, right? As if, you, if you're developing, uh, you know, a, a, a distributed application, if you're developing an enterprise application, really just trying to understand which standards apply to you, to what you're trying to do, what your use case is, and then really working backwards from the use case to understand how the standards apply to those. Is that, am I on the right track there? Yeah, I think the key would be whether you're a developer or a user or, you know, on the product side of things, I think really understanding what tools are already out there, what standards are out there and, and, and subsequently trying to really dig deep and understand, you know, why certain exploits have happened in the past. Um, what are the best practices around this dependent on the protocol and the smart contract um, environment that I'm interacting with? Cause of course we're talking about Ethereum here, but there are many others out there that are starting to come to the place where there are standards too. Yeah, cool. Thank you for elaborating there. 
I think we can go. Uh, I think we can go on layer ones, layer twos. But let's see how much we can get today without going down the matrix rabbit hole here. Yeah. So the way the way I found it helpful in my head when trying to understand these layers in blockchain tech is layer one solutions for optimizing the performance of the native blockchain, whereas layer twos provide that supplementary service. They remove congestion from the main chain. Um, these are good for those that need public chain but don't need to commit the blocks right away. Transactions can exist in those side chains till a certain point in time when they are committed back to the main chain. Do you remember different layer twos, different side chains handle this in different ways? I know for us, this is a kind of an area of passion for you. Can, you want to kind of elaborate on the side chain and, and layer twos for a bit? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, this kind of goes back to a theme that we talked about earlier. And that is that there's, of course, a limitation on the scalability of blockchain. You hear that criticism very often. This is driven by the consensus mechanism. The most important thing on a layer one chain, that would be the Ethereum mainnet. That would be um, the Bitcoin core network, that public network. That would be basically any other sort of main blockchain you can think of. The, the core things that you need there are security and finality, which basically says that um, you know, your, the likelihood of, of exploits, fraudulent transactions, double spend is low. And when a transaction is validated, it is final and cannot be rolled back. Right. Those are the two fundamental things. Scalability, right, comes secondary to those goals. In, in, in my opinion, and I think in general, right, you, you make it secure and then you make it fast um, yep. while not damaging your security. That kind of goes back to that trilemma or trifecta that I talked about before. Um, the... Interesting thing, though, is that you can sort of delegate some of the volume of transactions that goes through that that main layer one chain um, by using sort of external network layers. And so the first one that I, you can mention is a true layer two. So there are examples of this, like uh, the Bitcoin Lightning Network, for example. And the layer two effectively is a place where you can delegate sort of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, transactions in channels, in uh, you know a, a separate network layer, which then uh, sort of reconciles or backpropagates the result of those transactions or the state change from those transactions to the main chain. So effectively, you know, again, very abstract, very high level, very simplified. But yeah. if you say 100 transactions happen on the Lightning Network in a layer above the main chain on Bitcoin, um, this the end state of those 100 transactions can be reconciled to the main chain in one single transaction that goes into a block. So you can see how it sort of, you know, helps scale that uh, that Bitcoin blockchain. The key distinction here is that the layer two relies on the security guarantees, the consensus process of the Bitcoin blockchain in a general sense. Whereas side chains, which are different, um, they serve that same function, right? To sort of um, allow- it's Offloading congestion or offloading the traffic. Off yeah, yeah. Offload traffic and offload transaction congestion from the main chain or the layer one to a side chain. The difference, though, here, the key distinction, even though the terms are often um, conflated, is sidechains tend to have their own security guarantees, so their own consensus process. And so that means, you know, in this context, right, if there's a hack or a, an exploit or a consensus failure or something on that sidechain, um, you know, funds and transactions could be at risk on that sidechain um, because, of course, it is not relying wholesomely on the layer one chain for security. So it has its own security guarantees. Those are the key distinctions there, but generally they're, they're a means to an end for the same sort of goal um, overall. Yeah, so I think for, for our customers, if they're deploying on, on Ethereum on, on AWS managed blockchain, right? I think the important thing to think there is that if you decide that you will benefit from the benefits of a layer two or a side chain, really spend the time understanding the different options that are out there and really deciding whether you're, you are okay with the security of the underlying chain or you prefer the security of the side chain, maybe that that offers you, right? Keep in mind that that layer two is inheriting 
the base security of the of the layer one chains built on top of or supporting. Um, so just you know, do your research, understand which uh, side chains or layer twos you want to support in addition to Ethereum. Um, spend that time understanding that. Let's move on to uh, private blockchain versus public, right? We, we've spent some time talking about Ethereum, right? We mentioned a couple mm-hmm. of other chains as well. I've, I've mentioned Hyperledger a few times. Um, so I like, the way I like to kind of phrase it is that, you know, private would be a blockchain that exists among known parties running the uh, peer nodes in a Hyperledger, for example. Really, help me understand, though, how does a, a private blockchain compare to a permission blockchain? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of distinctions, right? If the way that I look at private and public blockchains in comparison to each other um, really comes down to a handful of different characteristics, right? The first one is level of privacy, right? It's evident in even the names that a private permission blockchain where you know the participants in advance um, versus a public blockchain where it's basically anonymous access, anyone can access that chain. Um, The level of privacy that the information or the transactions that you're making on that blockchain are very different. In you know very sensitive data type of use cases, many enterprise use cases um, necessitate the use of a private permission blockchain because you want to keep information um, sort of safe from external uh, unauthorized pr- uh, prying eyes. Uh, on the public blockchain side, right, you also get benefits in terms of um, you know the ability to transact with virtually anyone, and anyone can validate something. So if transparency is your goal, sort of writ large globally, then a public blockchain might be valuable as well. So there's a trade-off in terms of privacy there. In terms of performance as well, if you think about what we were talking about in consensus and in blockchain, right, the idea is that because there's no sort of central authority telling you what the presiding copy of the ledger is valid, you need to have some sort of consensus process that eliminates the inevitable malicious actors and and fraudulent activity that's going to happen. And when you have anonymous access in a public blockchain, where basically anyone can can you know keep a copy of the ledger, can interact with that ledger, the robustness of that consensus mechanism to economically disincentivize malicious behavior, it, it must be way more robust. Which of course means that generally, again, this is there are exceptions, but generally this equates to lower transaction throughput or lower scalability because the consensus mechanism has to be more robust against these types of things. Whereas in a private permission environment. Everyone knows the participants in advance. It's a closed environment. There's maybe a higher degree of trust in that network. Therefore, the consensus mechanisms can be a little less robust, a little less intensive. You get higher transaction throughput. So, I mean, those are the two big ones. Of course, you can talk about other things in in terms of um, how decentralized it is, how fault tolerant it is, or highly available it is in the context of um, geographic distribution, the number of nodes where private networks might be smaller and public networks are larger. Uh, but again, those are highly sort of subjective and, and dependent on the implementation. Cool. Th- thank you for the details. Uh, that that's helps uh, clear it up for me, right? And, and I want to encourage our listeners, right? If you want to hear a deeper dive on this uh, or any of the topics we're talking about, please do drop us a message in the uh, show notes. Uh, so I wanna, I'm going to summarize that, right? We have a private permission, right? And we have a public blockchain that's run by the public. You know, you don't know who runs the nodes on the public network. And that's kind of the point, right? It's a, it's a distributed network. It doesn't really matter when some of the nodes on the network go down as the transactions can be picked up by another node. Mm-hmm. So think of using the um, public blockchain when you want anyone to use your chain code or smart contracts. Um, and we're going to walk through some examples a little bit later um, in the show. And another way to think of the um, private versus public discussion is, is really centralized versus decentralized. So again, you know, a lot of detail there. Hopefully that kind of helps summarize it for some of our listeners. Yeah. Anything you'd like to add there for us before we move on to um, Hyperledger versus Ethereum? 
Yeah, two quick things. I think, you know, the, the last point, right, about pu private versus public, centralized versus decentralized, right? It, it's a gradient, I think, is the key. It's that your private network can become more decentralized, the more parties that independently verify the ledger and are participating in that network. You can also have a public blockchain that doesn't have, um, you know, even as many peers as a super large uh, private network, right? So it's a gradient uh, and it's really dependent on implementation. Um, you know, there are always, especially in technology, there are generalizations, there are sort of the what we're what we're used to, how we characterize things, and then there's obviously exceptions to the rules. So just bear that in mind. And the final thing is uh, public versus private blockchain is about picking the right tool for the job, yep. understanding where it can be applied, what your requirements are for your business. Oftentimes you see there being opportunities for a hybrid, right? You might need a, a private blockchain for, you know, some specific task. And, you know, maybe public blockchain is beneficial. Uh, of course, you know, that that being said, right, you often hear about, you know, hear things in absolutes, private blockchains are the best thing, or they aren't valuable, or public blockchains are the best thing, or they aren't valuable, where the, the reality is, it's, it's, uh, it's a gray area, not black and white, in, in that sense, um, the right tool for the job is key. Yeah, I think that's a good theme for today's show, right? As as we go through these different topics, it's really understanding what the what the workload is, right? Understand what you're trying to do first, mm -hmm. um, and then understanding what that tool is for the job, right? So that's a, that's a great segue into the next section, right? We're going to talk about, you know, two two of the two main networks supported in the AWS managed blockchain, right? Hyperledger or Ethereum, right? Hyperledger is an open source blockchain implementation, right? It's geared towards enterprises who are looking to build and manage their own blockchain network. Uh, it's a really simple way to think about this: is an organization wants to build a shared ledger amongst a few companies. Right. In this case, they can deploy Hyperledger on AWS with managed blockchain through the console, uh, maybe through the CLI, through CDK, through Terraform, uh, or maybe just through the SDK and connecting it to their application. Um, let's jump to Ethereum for a bit. We've talked about that quite a bit. So I'm going to go on a limb here and say that some of our audience has likely heard of Ethereum one way or another. Maybe you've heard of Ether. Um, that's the cryptocurrency on Ethereum uh, network that's used to pay for fees, and that those fees are commonly referred to as gas. Maybe you've heard it called ETH before. Um, Ethereum started back in 2015. Um, in March 2021, it was added to the managed blockchain service. This really opened the doors for a lot of our customers to provision Ethereum nodes in a couple of minutes and connect it to the public Ethereum main uh, network and test networks such as the uh, Rigby and uh, Robston uh, test networks. The service takes care of monitoring uh, node health, replaces unhealthy nodes, um, and automates any uh, Ethereum software upgrades as well. Remember that you can build your app and integrate that app into other AWS services as you continue to build and add more features to your app. Forrest, do you have you know any field examples, anything you'd like to share there about some cool things you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of, of interest across different industries in blockchain, right? In varying degrees of, of adoption, right? It, that could be proof of concept, true experimentation, exploration. That could also be pilot and even production solutions now um, starting to crop up. And so it's a really exciting time to be to be in this space, despite its nascency. Um, you know, it's it's great to, you know, to be a part of this team. Now, I think a couple of examples, right? The on the private permission side um, for Hyperledger Fabric in the context of Amazon Managed Blockchain, you know, right? It enables customers to create their private permission blockchain network, that base layer of infrastructure they need uh, to then focus solely on building the application layer. And focusing on, um, you know, taking advantage of the the value prop blockchain offers for their use case, and one of the big areas of, of focus there is in supply chain. Um, so in supply chain, there's often multi-party business structure where everyone has their own systems of record. Of course, that creates this sort of siloed 
inefficient process of reconciling either disputes in data or simply needing access to other people's uh, information in that supply chain to make better decisions. And so, you know, to sort of solve for that, you can use blockchain as this level playing field, um, still in a private permission environment. So you're not exposing data to the public, um, but to be able to share data in near real time amongst all the participants in a supply chain uh, to use chain code or smart contracts to um, facilitate business logic, things like escrows, for example, uh, in the context of the blockchain to trigger transactions of value. Um, really what it does is it becomes a single source of truth regarding a broad supply chain uh, and eliminates that manual paper or digital process that's required in reconciling disparate uh, systems of record. Um, and then on the Ethereum side, right, you have use cases that are <clears throat> very prevalent in the media, right? You've got a lot of interest in non-fungible tokens um, yep. or crypto collectibles, um, basically issuing media or content of any kind as digital assets. Um, and then also decentralized finance, um, you know, basically creating uh, smart contract based financial services. And then of course, in, in the banking side of things, right, there's interest in um, crypto custody and providing, you know, and consumers with the ability to sort of access the different, um, you know, cryptocurrency currency options and, and blockchains that are out there. Cool. Thank you for sharing this for us. We're, we're going to go into some other use cases a little bit later in the show, and we'll, we'll link to we'll link to all these uh, different use cases and stories that we've heard in, in the show notes as well. I highly encourage uh, our listeners to dive into those use cases. Right, that those are really great sources of inspiration when you start reading and, and um, learning about what some the supply chain manufacturers are doing out there with blockchain. Um, and how they're leveraging that really to expose more data to the customer and give higher visibility to the customer about the actual product that they're buying. Um, I think that's really cool because ultimately that's empowering knowledge in the customer, right? You're the consumer, you're buying the product, um, and that's empowering you, right? And the, the, it's the blockchain on the back end that's empowering that, right? Helping simplify things quite a bit there. So thanks for sharing those examples. All right, we, we covered both Hyperledger, we covered Ethereum, which you can use in the managed blockchain service. But I think we should go a little deeper. And particularly one question I want to answer, I know that my customers have asked me before, is really around, you know, is there one blockchain to rule them all, right? Is, do, you only, do we really need multiple blockchains? Uh, I know that this is an area you're particularly interested in for us, and I've, I've yeah. heard you talk about it quite a bit. Um, and I think we're on the same page here, right? The, the future of blockchain to me really is about interoperability. It's not one chain. There's never going to be one chain to rule them all. That's, I don't think that's ever going to happen. It's, it's really what you said before, right? It's about using the right one, the right tool for the job, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then ultimately as consumers, right, we can seamlessly switch between them. So if, if that tool is not the right for the job and you, you go down that step and that process and you realize it's not the right one, you can still switch. Um, it's not a, a permanent thing and you uh, set in stone forever, right? So mm -hmm. really try to understand what that use case is and work backwards from there, uh, right? So ultimately, again, I, I want to hark on this again, right? There's never going to be one blockchain. I, I don't think that will ever happen. Mm -hmm. um, it's similar to databases uh, and coding languages, right? Everyone has their favorite tech. Everyone has their favorite one that they love. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has its place in enterprise technology. It's kind of like that uh, square peg in the round hole analogy here, right? Um, yeah. If it doesn't fit, uh, don't force it. <laughs> right. You know, really, I, I just I keep saying this and I want to just keep encouraging. I know you said it before, too. Right. You have to work backwards from the end goal. Don't mm -hmm. work forwards from the technology. Work backwards from the end goal. You know, help me understand a little more here. Right. Let's dive into it deeper. I know this is, again, whatever you're, you're passionate about. You know, mm -hmm. can you share your perspectives here? You hit the nail on the head in terms of picking the right tool for the right job. And and it's like something that's talked about at AWS quite often, it's, you know, especially in terms of databases, it's purpose built. Right built for a purpose. And I, I really, you know, I speak 
from my own personal perspective, and this may not be shared by everyone in the world or even everyone on the team, <laughs> the, the difference of opinion is, is amazing. But I, I really do believe that there will be a handful of blockchain protocols, different blockchain protocols that survive long term and become very much focused on a set of use cases that it, that they're very well tailored to. And then the, the sort of the foundation of the future of blockchain is going to very much be interoperability. The ability for those different protocols that serve different functions to interoperate with each other uh, into a blockchain of blockchains. Um, so you might hear in you know in the the blockchain space um, you know broadly the the future is multi-chain and that's uh, you know I, I believe multi-chain multi-protocol is indeed the future because I, I genuinely think that there is a um, there is a value in diversity of of protocol and diversity of options as long as the they are interoperable in a secure way and that the user experience can be unified for the end consumer. As our listeners go down that path, right, they start exploring different technologies, right, different chains that are available, different chains that are out there, right, and they try to make the analysis of which one fits my workload best, mm -hmm. right? Are, are there, you know, specifically talking about different blockchain technologies, right, are, are there ones that come to mind you think that listeners should be aware of as they're doing the research? I mean, I think if you, if you, if you wanted to really look at different protocols, the way that you should go about it is really looking at problems first. If I have a challenge, like I need extremely, I want to put all of financial services onto a blockchain network. What do you really need there? You need a high degree of security and you need high throughput. Again, general, very general, um, you know, very naive implementation, but thinking in that way, it's like, what is the problem that I think this can solve? What do I need? And then you can look for protocols that meet those characteristics, you know, and, and knowing that, right? Like it's, the actual like ledger technology underneath at that base layer, it's the consensus protocol, it's the ability to build on top of it, the developer ecosystem, all sorts of important things. Um, but of course, there are also different types of decentralized networks that maybe are not truly, you know, traditional blockchains, you know, things yeah. like directed acyclic graphs, like DAGs, or permutations of both like blockchain and DAGs, which I guess you could call like a hash graph. <laughs> There's all sorts of things out there to really to look at. And, and so that my, my advice would be to focus on the problem and then look at the technology that's out there in that lens. Yeah, I, I think you can get lost, right? There's such it's such a nascent <laughs> new, you know, innovative space, right? That there's so many different options, right? Like you said that there's that hybrid of, you know, the the, the DAG and the blockchain which end up being the graph, right? Which is mm -hmm. just confusing, right? Because as you start going down this path, you're like, okay, which one do I need? Is it this one or is it that one or is it both, right? And the mm -hmm. answer is more, again, go, like you said, go back to your problem, right? What you're actually trying to solve and then decide which one's the, the right tool for the job there. Thanks, thanks for that detail for us. That really helps sure. uh, helps me understand DAGs. I've heard that quite a bit there. So thanks for that detail. All right, let's uh, let's go into blockchains versus database because I know again this is one of the areas we've talked about before. I know my customers have mm -hmm. asked me about this before, uh, so let's dive into it. Right, it, really, this this starts with the question of why would someone use a blockchain versus just a database? Right, uh, that's a very fair question to ask. Right, again, we talk about the tools. Yeah. So I, I think the easiest way to understand this is if we started from the use case, right, like we talked about before, right, start from that business problem and then go back uh, and forth on some of them. So let's start with an example here. Right, we have a manufacturer. They produce wooden sheds. This manufacturer needs to track every time someone checks out a specific tool or a piece of equipment. They do this for their own internal auditing. Uh, they don't share this data with any other external parties. And they also want to ensure the data cannot be changed in any way. And they have to retain the records for seven years. So let's look at their needs and work backwards from that. We can call out that because they need to ensure that the data doesn't change, that plays well into the mutability of the blockchain technology. 
The other part is that the data needs to be retained for seven years, which is uh, in the database world would mean uh, backups and retaining and testing those backups. This is another win for blockchain as the ledger is not only mutable, but you can go through the entire history of the ledger and follow the transaction trail. So a database would not be the right option in this example. Is there it, it maybe an example you think that uh, databases would make more sense? See, this is the this is probably the most common question that that myself as as a you know solution architect or I guess uh, you know a technologist in the blockchain space comes across. Right, it's you know customers are trying to figure out where blockchain fits, where a database fits better, where the delineation is. Um, you know, a common question I get in the in the context is, well, why can't I just use a database that's shared for this? Right, and so. The way that I look at this is is, is in a, a couple of different ways. First and foremost, a database by nature is a centralized construct. No matter if it's shared access, there's still always an administrator. There's still always someone that you can point to that owns that database. It's also tr- traditionally databases are by nature um, not immutable or append only. You can make you know total like mutations to that data. You can delete data, so on and so forth. So blockchain offers cryptographic um, sort of guarantees of, you know, showing you if something has been changed in the past, first and foremost, but by nature, it is a sort of tamper evident system in that way. And it is, you know, at least an attempt to be a fully immutable system. So if I say, instead of deleting data, I would create a new transaction that changes that data to, you know, a null value, for example, but I can see the history of the chain of custody of that data. That's different than what a database does traditionally. But the key distinction between when to use a database and when to use a blockchain really centers around performance and the way you access that data. And then also, um, you know, the, the pattern of how it's interacted with. So first and foremost, a blockchain is valuable where there is a multi-party use case, multi-party environment, where there is value in being able to create a level playing field, a single source of truth between multiple disparate entities who are going to read and write to that blockchain network. And subsequently, might get value out of being able to execute code in the context of that blockchain to facilitate some sort of conditional business logic or transaction logic. That's one big big indicator. If you're looking at blockchain and you're saying, well, this would be held internally at my organization, there's no real multiple parties involved, then there might be other options in a, in a centralized environment that that hit the the target for you. Yeah, the so that, others sorry, that could, go ahead, go so ahead. that could be the database, right? I mean, that that's a that's yeah. a good option where it could be a database just the traditional databases might fit well and do fine, right? We'll talk about QLDB in a second here. Yeah, right? but, exactly. But databases could work just fine there. No doubt. And, 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 you know, you look at the last part of it, right, is, you know, blockchains are not, oftentimes blockchains start in experimentation phases to be applied as a, either a bulk data store or as a transport layer to transport large quantities of information. Neither of those use cases are really a, a great fit. Blockchain helps you rationalize information. Blocks, blockchain helps you um, reconcile information and keep you know, accountability and transparency between disparate parties. Blockchain is a great place to do you know, create shared business logic, but it's not a great place to just dump large quantities of data and and query it, right? It, like a database. So it's really understanding how the tool fits. Again, it's like the right tool for the job. Oftentimes in the private permission world, blockchains are used in tandem with databases where databases perform really, really well is in rich queries, in performance. It's easier to scale a database. Um, it's easier to make, um, you know, a database fit into 
um, data analytics pipelines. There's there's all sorts of different reasons why you would maybe want a hybrid environment or you'd want to pick one or the other. Um, but those are some of the general thoughts that go into you know looking at databases versus, versus blockchains. Cool. Th- thanks for sharing that. So let's jump into the um, really the, the the QLDB discussion here, right? Because or let's jump into the discussion you were talking about before about you know if you're building an application and it's only for use internally. Mm-hmm. Right. Then what would you use? Right. So I, I think that's to me, that's when you'd use QLDB. Again, the database is certainly an option. Right. But but if you have made that distinction and you've determined, OK, this is going to be an only an internal an internal only application. It's not a multi-party mm-hmm. application, like you said before. We're only going to use this inside. And you've also made the distinction that the database services are not going to work. Right. That for whatever reason, the databases are not going to apply and that maybe QLDB does make more sense or blockchain makes more sense. So therefore you can leverage the service QLDB as an example, right? That's going to remove that management layer from you. You don't have to no longer manage the underlying uh, network or nodes, anything in, in, in the uh, QLDB environment. But there's there's three things to keep in mind with QLDB that I, I want to call out here. There's the journal. This journal is the document database. It's stored in what's called IN format. Uh, this is like that ledger. You know, this is where the transactions actually live, right? And this is similar to the blockchain. For those applications that need to read from QLDB, you'd use the user view or the committed view. You can think of the user view as the current table or the current data in the ledger for that record, whereas the committed view as maybe the history table. But keep in mind, I said tables, but these aren't really tables. They're just views into the underlying journal data. Again, remember, QLDB is also serverless. Uh, there's no instances to manage, um, and he uses a language called party QL. Uh, this is similar in syntax to your traditional SQL. One interesting caveat, though, that I think uh, users should keep in mind, especially if you're talking about asset compliance, is that the read and write has to occur in the same transaction. Otherwise, you don't uh, you lose that asset compliance. Um, so that's a quick primer on QLDB. But let's wrap up with how it differs from from blockchain. Right? Keep in mind, blockchain frameworks can be decentralized. Uh, that's kind of the point. Uh, or they cannot be if you want it to be private with Hyperledger. So in that public blockchain, you want to execute a transaction. They require the majority of uh, members on the network to reach consensus, we talked about before, to then validate that transaction. However, on the other hand, right, with QLDB, it's centralized. So transactions execute with without that need for consensus. Um, and finally, there's less overhead, less complexity to manage versus the Hyperledger or Ethereum blockchain options. So are there some use cases you think we can highlight for QLDB, maybe just to give our listeners some ideas? Yeah, on the blockchain team, we work really closely with the Quantum Ledger database team, the QLDB team. And the distinction here is that QLDB is not a blockchain. What it is, is a a centralized database structure or ledger structure that takes some of the key benefits of blockchain and lets you apply them in a centralized environment, right? So you get the immutability, you get the append-only data structure, you get the cryptographic non-repudiation where I can say, you know, given this public key, I can prove that you signed it with the corresponding private key. So I know this person committed this information to the, to the ledger, right? You get those things, um, but in a slightly more performant environment in a centralized environment where you don't need to decentralize that ledger across multiple parties. So some use cases that you can think of, right, immediately are, you know, internal audit, first of all. You know, you think about very sensitive, like financial institutions, uh, medical, uh, medical use cases or healthcare use cases, sensitive data in terms of like, uh, you know, classified information, being able to track access and manipulation of said data to prove to you know to regulators to compliance verifiers we have a clear picture of exactly who accessed what data when and did what to it and you so you have that audit layer that uh, immutable data structure 
uh, in a ledger format that is centralized because you don't want anyone else to really participate in that network. That's a great use case for a centralized ledger like this. Um, you know, there are a handful of different use cases, but I think you can kind of get the idea between the the nuanced but still clear difference between a true blockchain and something like QLDB, a centralized ledger. Some great examples. I think one of the comes to mind for me is, is around healthcare, right? I think with, with some of the healthcare industries or healthcare companies, right? When you're talking about you don't need, you're not trying to share that data externally, right? If you're trying to track something internal only for the patient, you're not sharing that data with other external parties. That might be a great use for QLDB because you can uh, you have that journal, you have that transaction history. In this case, they're not transactions. Maybe they're appointment visits, maybe they're prescription refills, right? But you can track that history of those visits throughout time. You can track the history of the refills throughout time. Uh, again, just uh, one of the use cases of the many examples uh, out there. Uh, we're going to dive into those uh, use cases in a little bit here as well. Before we we talk about you know kind of the use cases and really move more into the enterprise space, I want to get back to one thing I want to flush out right. And again, this is the discussion about you know how do how do the nodes in a network in a blockchain environment know about each other right? And I know you've mm-hmm. explained this to me before, and kind of the way that I, I simplify this in my head, um, and I'm going to use this analogy to explain to my customers is, you know, I live in a neighborhood. I have, uh, you know, three neighbors that I like and I talk to regularly, right? Those neighbors each have three neighbors that they talk to regularly. And I tell my neighbor, one of the, you know, I tell those three neighbors a, a secret or something I want to share with them. <clears throat> Maybe it's just, you know, hey, I went to the park today, <clears throat> you know, and assuming we don't play the broken telephone game here and, mm-hmm. and, you know, they actually maintain that message throughout, right? Those three uh, neighbors that I tell, they will tell, you know, nine neighbors after that, right? And then it's 27 after that, right? And then that just, that continues on from there. So to me, that's kind of the sort of gossiping that I've heard, right? I've heard the, the gossip protocol, the whisper protocol. I've heard these things before, but that's kind of kind of simplified in my head. Can you help us a little understand maybe the, the depth of it more? Maybe there's more nuance to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty a pretty good generalization or, or analogy for how this this type of thing works. So if you think about how, uh, you know, in a client server type of environment, right? It's very obvious how this works, right? You have a, a client's application that communicates with a web server. You get your information from there it's a very clear relationship in terms of data and and peering in a peer to peer network where there is no sort of central server that everyone talks to to get the the the, the truth or to get information you need a way for, to sort of propagate information through the network in an efficient way and so that includes sort of phases of of communication which is first of all identifying peers right identifying uh nearest neighbor nodes for example that you can talk to to get information from and share information to. And then of course, then how you propagate that information and determine um, what information one particular node already has seen versus hasn't seen. So there's a lot of depth to the overall uh, holistic view of what a gossip protocol is, but it is aptly named, like you mentioned, Shai, in the, <laughs> in the, in the sense that it, it's uh, sort of based on the idea of how gossip spreads among people, right? Where yeah. you you find your nearest neighbors, you find, um, you know, the closest partner you can, you tell them something, you know that they have relationships that you don't have, they can tell them that thing, and then it spreads from there, right? So, you know, specific examples of implementations of gossip protocols, which is sort of the overall bucket term, would be like in Ethereum, the whisper protocol is one. Uh, And so each of these different you know, implementations of a gossip protocol, you know, sort of have permutations and different uh, levers to make it more efficient to to solve certain problems in that particular network based on its unique architecture. Um, so I think that's a good, you know, good introduction. But of course, there's so much depth here to go into. Um, and I would definitely suggest reading 
um, some of the awesome collateral that's out there on on uh, gossip protocols. Yeah, I think it's it's really cool. I mean, just the, the the idea of you know how communication works between the network, right? All the details there. Again, there's like you said, there's many different protocols, many different ways it can happen. So definitely mm-hmm. in a certain area that you can dive into and get a little better understanding. This is really going to be the, that key decision point, right? When you're deciding what blockchain uh, technology you want to choose, right? If it's Ethereum, mm-hmm. Hyperledger, or something else, that gossip, how the nodes on the network communicate, is going to be part of your decision, um, ultimately based on your use case. Let's jump into uh, some of the use cases, right? I think we've, we've gotten most of the fundamentals out of the way, right? I think there's still certainly probably many more terminology we can throw out there, a lot of things we can dive into. Mm-hmm. But I think we've, we've done a good job of covering the fundamentals. So let's talk about some of the um, sort of exciting, uh, more enterprise use cases that we've seen out there, right? Um, how mm-hmm. enterprises are adopting blockchain. Um, so I, the example I like to pick on, and I started talking about this before, um, just because we, we love coffee in our family and it's, uh, you know, anything that we can get more information about coffee is, is mm-hmm. great for us, right? So... With the managed blockchain service, uh, the Nestle story, I think, is a good one to highlight here, right? They leveraged and built a Hyperledger fabric network. They invited their partners to collaborate in this supply chain effort with them. This transparency is what they're ultimately after. Um, The managed blockchain is going to help them enable their customers, right, like me, to track where the product came from, all the way from the grower that grew that coffee bean, to the roaster, to the packager, to the supplier, to the store that I bought it from. Um, and then ultimately to my door, right? And I can I can track that coffee the, all the way through. So I think again, as a consumer and a lover of coffee, I think that's uh, awesome thing there. And I know you you love your coffee too. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about the other the other use case here, right? I, I read about Two Work, right? And, and some of the things that they're doing, right? And again, another supply chain use case. They're using us in, in a decentralized way, right? Their their goal is decentralizing the supply chain and working with uh, many different suppliers. So they've uh, leveraged the Hyperledger fabric. They've integrated into their, their existing uh, supply and chain solution with only a couple of days. Uh, again, really good story there. We'll, we'll link that detail uh, if you'd like to dive into the details there. I, I want to talk about it solely a, a maybe juxtaposition type of use case, right? That maybe our listeners aren't thinking about enterprises and NFTs. You may have heard of NFTs. Uh, I know you and I have certainly had heard of them, but maybe our listeners have heard of them. You know, $69 million uh, art piece uh, being sold uh, as an NFT. Maybe it's a silly GIF or GIF, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, that's being sold as an NFT, right? Maybe it's a, a sports card of your favorite player or even some cool things like a, a video moment of that sports player dunking uh, mm-hmm. being sold as an NFT, right? So you, I think our listeners probably heard of those use cases, but I think there's also some real world enterprise use cases. Can you help us dive into the, um, the Contura one? Yeah, so let me start on the NFTs and then move towards Kintura. I think we can kind of move that in in line here. So I guess on the NFT side, right, it's thinking about how NFTs work mechanically. An NFT, a non-fungible token, is really a digital representation or certificate of ownership of a um, a unique non-fungible asset, meaning it has unique characteristics that make it more or less valuable or unique in and of itself. And so major license holders or brand holders are thinking about how they can issue sort of exclusive collectibles in a digital format um, using non-fungible tokens. Um, there are plenty of, of ideas in terms of how to leverage NFTs as uh, intrinsic things as well. So things like uh, non-physical uh, identity attributes, right? Issuing credentials as NFTs. Um, you know, So imagining you get a, a degree from a university or a certification uh, in the form of a non-fungible token. Um, so there's all sorts of very interesting stuff happening in that space. Um, you know, obviously that as that sort of side of the technology matures, 
Uh, you'll see even more uh, adoption there, but there's lots of experimentation and, and interest going on there. It'd be interesting to see that wall of certificates in a digital format, right? With like TVs yeah. behind somebody and screens all showing their digital NFT certificates. I think we'll yeah. see that in a couple of years here, probably. Yeah, the shift <laughs> towards digital everything is is already happening, right? You have kids, you know, young young people that, you know, are you know, in the video game world, right? There's another yeah. huge avenue for use cases, but like there's there's millions, if not billions, I think it's probably billions of dollars being spent on in-game items. Just in my that, house alone, yeah. Yeah, and naturally, <laughs> yeah, billions. Shia, you're a billionaire, my friend. Um, and, and and so, you know, you think about it, it's like we're already shifting that direction. Um, NFTs give you that layer of ownership to truly own a unique digital asset fit, you know, metaphysical or not. And, yeah. and I think that's the power. Yeah. I think that's pretty awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. All right. So that's, that's, there's a lot more use cases out there, but one important thing to remember, it's not about which workload fits the technology. It's actually the other way around. Start with the workload, right? Work your way backwards, understand the business case, understand what your customers need, and then work backwards from there. In the meantime, while you're doing that research, right, spend some time diving deeper into the managed blockchain, QLDB, Look to understand how they differ from other database and other storage technology, um, understanding which blockchain uh, technology suits you best, right? Which type of database suits you best. There's a lot of things to understand there and a lot of time to do the research while you're trying to understand that customer yeah, use case. Again. Definitely. Let's jump into, uh, you know, where do where do you even start with blockchain, right? I think that's a, that's a very common question we get afterwards, right? You guys talked that we talked about all this stuff here, right? But where do you actually start? So I, I think we, we've laid the foundation, right? Um, so let's talk about, you know, getting the details here. First, you're going to figure out which blockchain you need, right? Uh, maybe it's database, it'll do just fine, right? So go that route. Then determine who's using the application, right? Is it going to be um, just your company is it, or is it going to be internal only? Is it going to be by used by you only or by other organizations? Or is it going to be used by the unknown public? Try to understand all those things as you dive deeper. If it is internal only, uh, you're likely going to go to the route of QLDB or maybe a database. If it's known entities, then likely manage blockchain with Hyperledger. Then finally, if it's a public uh, and you want maybe the unknown public to interact with that application, then it's like going to be Ethereum. So we've linked to a uh, tutorial in the show notes uh, for QLDB. In that tutorial, you can get started with creating a new ledger. You'll create the tables, the indices, uh, you load sample data into the ledger. Now that you have the service set up and loaded with some dummy data, you'll want some tables in that ledger and you'll learn how to modify the documents in that ledger. Finally, you'll walk through viewing revision history for a document and verifying that that document is in the ledger. And that's it for QLDB. Remember, there's no servers to manage. So when you're done testing, just delete the resources you deployed and then move on as needed. So next, let's jump into getting started with managed blockchain. There's going to be a couple more steps here. So we're just going to talk about kind of the initial parts here, but you'll want to read through the documentation to uh, get through a lot more details and understand what, what you're actually doing here. So it's important to remember, you're going to set up the initial member and the channel in your AWS account. You're then going to invite members to join from a second account, and then you'll want to start off with reading the prerequisites and the considerations. These are important as there's some foundational knowledge that you have to have and understand before you move forward. Um, in the meantime, as well, you can kind of work with the business analysts, work with your teams, right? work backwards, try and understand who's going to be part of that network, uh, what other features that they're going to need to have, and then move forward from there. Again, we'll link the documentation in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. And one thing to note, right, is, you know, on the that's the hyperledger fabric side getting started there there's also some collateral on the ethereum side mm -hmm. um, which you can link and of course you know from my perspective on the amazon managed blockchain solutions architecture team um, you know we're here to help so if you have an idea for blockchain you know you're you're looking to adopt blockchain you can reach out to us to to get you know engaged and we can assist you in this journey and then we also have an immersion day for both uh, hyperledger fabric and ethereum which really is like sort of a hands-on guided session to help you learn 
how to do this. So if you're if your organization's interested, uh, you can reach out. Yeah, those sessions are definitely great to, to get some hands-on experience and learn. But given that you have some hands-on you know, experience and field experience, you've mm-hmm. seen some tried and tribulations out from customers. What's kind of the some of the hurdles that really stand out to you that you think the customer should be particularly aware of um, as they go down this journey and get started? We, we talked about, you know, understanding your use case, understanding the, the problem, understand from there. But what's some of the Yeah, the yeah. I mean, I think if you think customers? about blockchain broadly and the challenges that you face, you've got business challenges and you've got tech challenges. The business challenges are twofold, right? The first one is identifying the right use case that'll give you the most value and how you're going to measure the success of that initial testing of blockchain. That's tough. Um, there's limited innovation budget in a lot of organizations. How can you say our project is worth the innovation budget to, to test, right? And then the other part of that too is once you've done that testing, you've said, I know this is going to work. I know there's going to be value. We've got numbers and data to prove it. How do you get other organizations to come to the table? external to you that are going to really help you realize that economies of scale capture the value of the blockchain solution. Those are the hardest challenges in blockchain is getting started, picking the use case, gathering data, getting buy-in internally, then getting buy-in externally and really coming to fruition there. It's not even technology yet, right? There's no technology even discussion there yet. It's all that's all the business discussion, right? That's it, the, is. it seems like that's the hardest part you have to do yeah. first. And I mean, on the tech side, right? It's a tech. matter of, of nascency, right? A lot of organizations don't have that internal talent structure yet. Um, and, and need to develop that. And, you know, of course, we can help with that to, to help sort of augment and, um, you know, assist along the way. And and that's the main challenge is it's really just getting familiar with the, the paradigm, getting familiar with the way you develop smart contracts versus a traditional web application or app server. You know, there's there's some technical challenges there, but most of the time, I think the tech challenges get reconciled relatively quickly and it becomes more so about really capturing value from the solution. Cool. So I want to throw you a curveball here just to, to catch you off guard a little bit, right? Because I know I know my customers are going to ask me this question and they're going to say, okay, well, we've made all the business decisions. We've talked about that. We have all the parties in the room, right? They all agreed to this, right? They, they somehow got a magical <laughs> unicorn along with it and finished those discussions very quickly. Now they're like, okay, we're, we're ready to deploy Hyperledger. And I say, you know, hey, read the documentation. I work with them and we, we explain to them, mm-hmm. but, you know, they don't want to read the documentation maybe, right? They, they just want to, they're so excited after listening to us talking about blockchain for the last, you know, hour or so that they're like, I just want to go right full forth to the mm-hmm. technology, build out a Hyperledger network. What's like one thing that you think that they should I think be with Hyperledger Fabric, the most important thing is making sure that you're starting from a well-optimized place from the beginning. Things like setting up your architecture to utilize an off-chain database structure to do complex queries. Oftentimes, for example, you have this option of choosing to use CouchDB, you know, sort of like a NoSQLs type of database that allows for rich queries as the main world state database for your Hyperledger Fabric network. That's beneficial in terms of queries and what you can do and how you can store and, and, and retrieve data, but it does incur a performance hit in terms of the network and, and its overall throughput. So you could go with LevelDB as the core world state database, get more performance, and then you can use an event listener architecture to replicate data from your your blockchain uh, in near real time to a database like DynamoDB and query from there, right? So thinking about optimizations early to set yourself up for a good platform to then build upon in the future. You know, of course, there are some things that you can try and then optimize later, things like the size of the instances you're running your peer nodes on. Um, Then there are some things that you want to try and get set in a, a good place as a good foundation going forward. So that's just one thing. Of course, that's part of our job is to help customers pick the right tool for the right job for, and and then the right optimization, the right configurations. So we're here to help there. Yeah. I guess I could do the same thing for Ethereum if that works. Yeah, go ahead. Why not just uh, jump the gun and right go straight to Ethereum. So let's talk about that one. 
Yeah, I think with Ethereum, it's it's such a different model than sort of a database and application or then moving to a private blockchain, which a private blockchain maybe sometimes can feel like it's not a blockchain because it's kind of abstracted. With Ethereum, right, you have a lot of extra things to think about, right? Because first of all, are you going to have customers, your customers signing transactions yeah. on uh, the client side themselves with a self-custody wallet like MetaMask? Or are you going to have customers submitting unsigned transactions to you or data to produce an unsigned transaction that you're going to sign for them in the back end? That means the technology choice is going to be very different and how your system works is going to be very different. Ultimately, your nodes are really there to help you broadcast transactions to the network and then read data from the network or subscribe to events on the network. And so it's Again, being problem focused, use case focused on how people are going to interact with your with your network. And if you are responsible for custody of keys and subsequently submitting transactions on users' behalf, you have to consider that you need to have Ether, the native coin or cryptocurrency to pay fees. And you need to have a really, really robust custody solution in place to store cryptographic keys, which are the foundation, the bedrock of security on a blockchain. All right. Thanks, Forrest. You got a bit ahead of me there with Ethereum, but I, that was going to be my next question anyway. So thanks for jumping right into that. I, I know my customers are going to ask for, so thanks for all the detail there. All right. You know, it's been a long one. Uh, before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to highlight some of the blog posts our peers have written that our customers might want to dive into um, and walk through some of those hands-on examples. Again, we're going to link through all these in the show notes. So if you're getting started with dApps or distributed applications and you want to kick the tires on developing your own, there's a great starting guide on developing Ethereum node with Amazon blockchain. And then our peers uh, post, uh, there's another one uh, around building a serverless blockchain application with Amazon Managed Blockchain. Uh, again, if you're building an enterprise uh, distributed application. All right, you, you built your first application, right? Next steps from there. You want to learn how to integrate your application with other AWS services. Since most of the apps are going to have a user directory, you know, you mentioned that identity example before for us. I think the next place to start is going to be integrating that directory with the blockchain, maybe to sign transactions on the chain on the customer's behalf. So again, another post there titled Integrating Amazon Blockchain Identities with Amazon Cognito. That's going to walk you through that process. And then finally, you have the dApp deployed. It's running on the um, Ethereum blockchain. If it's public, it's running on a Hyperledger if it's private. But you want to look at operationalizing it and really getting insights from the network, right? What's happening there? So again, another post about how to manage, how to track activity, manage blockchain with CloudWatch. This will take you through a step-by-step -step process with screenshots as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that you can do um, and so many services that AWS offers that work really well with Amazon Managed Blockchain or, of course, you know, self-hosted blockchain networks that you leverage from the, you know, our APN partners, different solutions there. You know, a couple of things to note, right? You might want to operationalize logging with CloudWatch and, you know, Shai alluded to that there. So there's some native integration between Amazon Managed Blockchain and CloudWatch that uh, I think fits a lot of different use case bills. Uh, the other thing that you can do, right, is use other ancillary services, for example, setting up a CICD pipeline of sorts for chain code or smart contracts for Hyperledger Fabric. I think there's some collateral out there uh, for that, Shai. I had a feeling we're going to cover that one. So I, I'll go ahead and put that one in the show notes too. All right, so we just scratched the surface here, right? Uh, we've talked for a long time, right? But I think I think there's so many areas that we can dive deeper into, right? There's so many more things that we can get into, and, and I'm I'm gonna I want to encourage our listeners to look through the show notes, listen to the podcast again if you need to, and let us know if there's anything that we missed. Let us know if there's anything that you want to dive into. What specific area that you want more information about? Is it network communications? Is it consensus? Is it private versus public? Uh, is it more an Ethereum versus uh, Hyperledger, and which one to choose, right? Is it QLDB versus um, 
you know, blockchain and which one to choose there. So let's let's summarize where we, we've been through right this last hour. Again, it feels like a lot, uh, even though we just scratched the surface there. So we started by really covering the foundations, right? We talked about cryptocurrencies, tokenization. We, we then talked about the uh, communication and uh, the smart contracts as well. Uh, before we moved on to the differences between layer one, layer twos and side chains. And, and you give us a really good detail there. Yeah, absolutely. And then we followed up with some discussion around private blockchains versus public blockchains, Hyperledger versus Ethereum, how to choose. Uh, and then we closed out by uh, by answering this this sort of question, is there one blockchain or, you know, why, why do we need multiple blockchains? Will they interoperate with each other? Uh, and then jumped into blockchain versus databases, QLDB and managed blockchain, sort of the explanation of those. And then dove into how nodes on the blockchain know and talk to each other. We covered a lot of ground here. Yeah, we did. And finally, we wrapped up with some use cases um, that we've heard, right? And by looking at where customers should start their blockchain journey. Thanks for joining us again, Forrest. It's, it's certainly been a blast. A pleasure learning, you know, so much information from you. Look forward to more discussions. <laughs> but thank you ultimately for indulging my questions. I know I threw a lot of curveballs at you out there. So thank you for indulging us, right? Allowing us to dive deep and really, you know, peel back those layers and all that knowledge that you've amassed over these years. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I mean, one of the big, you know, I think challenges that this, this space and blockchain world has faced is that a lot of the topics are very dense and it's difficult to bring them up um, and, and really just bring them down to brass tacks, right? Like what, what does it yeah. really mean? How do these things work? Uh, and so that's just a, that's a critical component and, uh, you know, definitely happy to go into more depth uh, in future sessions. That's all for today, folks. Keep the feedback coming. Drop us an email at the ADPS tech chat at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of the show. Join us again next time on the deep dive episode of your choosing, but until next time, bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat by visiting awstechchat.com. <laughs>